I suppose you get used to, even old fogies like me get used to sort of trends and things become modern, don't they, you know? But I picked up um, on the internet, on YouTube, uh, services from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which was Spurgeon's old church. And they're very, they're Reformed Baptists, which they have been since Spurgeon's day. Um, and I suppose it, it would be fair to say they're old-fashioned. Um, I mean, most of their hymns are, I don't know what hymn book they sing from, but all the words are these and thous, and all the prayers contain these and thous, and it's, it's, it took me back to my childhood. Um, and, you know, they start singing these hymns, and the, and the organ roars in, but the singing is absolutely fabulous. I don't know what they've done because during the 70s, I think it was, the 60s, mid-50s to 70s, um, the place was on verge of closure. But now every Sunday morning and evening it's packed out with about 2,000 people. I don't know how it's packed, picked up. And Peter Masters, I don't know if you've heard him preach, I mean, the, the doctrine of the, of the Reformed Baptists is, is a bit uh, powerful, to say the least. But... Um, He's a, a very uncharismatic man. He stands there in a simple black suit and tie, and literally just he doesn't move, doesn't move his hands, doesn't he? Just talks. Um, but when you listen, you know you're thinking to yourself, "Where well, this guy? You know, some preacher, some preacher." You could, might have to put some of the doctrine aside of the Reformed Baptists if you don't uh, agree with it, but. Uh, it just took me back, and the organ playing and the singing, you know, it was absolutely marvellous. So, if you want a trip back, you 60 pluses, and you'd like a trip back to, <coughs> to your younger days uh, in church, uh, have a look at it, Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, I've never actually been there. Has anybody actually ever been there and, and attended a service there? No? Right, right opposite the Elephant and Castle Underground Station, but it's, it's a massive place. Uh, you can see it on Google Maps. <coughs> yeah, it's, mad. It's, it's a massive place, and it's, it's packed out every Sunday morning and evening. They're so old-fashioned, they still have their Sunday school between three and four in the afternoon. You know that? Yeah, really. I mean, I thought the Amish were a bit old hat, but these, <laughs> these guys. Anyway, that's why they're buying it, really. I don't know what caught me on that, just the singing, I guess. <coughs> so here we are. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, and what a... You know, what a, an epic story this is, isn't it? This, uh, this story of, of, of Moses, the whole, the whole thing, right from the very start, as we started off uh, being planted in the bulrushes. Um, and here we are, what is it, 80 years later, and he's uh, leading the children of Israel out of captivity and <coughs> hopefully at this stage into the promised land. But uh, we shall see. But here we are, chapter 14 of Exodus. And because there's no leader tonight, I can read the whole chapter. And, and I don't think it, it wouldn't do it justice not to, to be fair. <clears throat> so chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. And Pharaoh will think 
The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's hearts, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea at Piheroth, opposite Baal Zephon. And as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Sorry, the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. And the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been travelling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither side went near each other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all the night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud and at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. 
And when the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What an epic, what an epic story. Surely, uh, don't find me at work. Uh, what an epic story. You know, outside of Calvary, surely this is, this is God's greatest work. Surely. The amazing thing is, the last, the, 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 I'll, I'll go off my notes straight away. <clears throat> right at the end there, right at the end in the very last verse, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. We can go back 80 years and find exactly the same phrase, exactly the same word used of the midwives who put Moses in the bulrushes. It took the nation 80 years to fear the Lord, the same as the midwives did. Just a little aside. But what a wonderful story. How this man, you know, this man was saved. How he was brought up, uh, uh, you know, with the education of the Egyptians as a prince of Egypt in in many respects. Went off then for 40 years, became a shepherd and suddenly called back to do this mighty work for God. I don't know if you can... I was laying there, well, not laying there, well, I was laying back in the sofa. I didn't really think I was laying down. I was laying back on the sofa this afternoon. I closed my eyes for a moment and just tried to imagine, you know, here's a guy who'd, who'd been herding a, a, a few flocks of sheep around in Midian, now he's called back to lead what most commentators seem to think would have been well in excess of two million bodies, plus all the livestock, plus all the, the luggage and the furniture. And here he was, having to lead these people out of Egypt. And you, you, you close your eyes for a moment, and, and it's, you can't imagine it. Well, I can't. Perhaps you've got better imaginations. You know, and God has called these people up to rise up and leave. The, there's a, a, in in uh, the previous chapter, um, in 13, um, you know, there's a bit of a, a misplaced thing in here. It talks about the people marched out, I think it's in the NIV, I don't know about in this revised one, but in the NIV I was reading it, the, mar- the people marched out ready for battle. Um, a very poor translation. They, they didn't march out ready for battle. These people have been slaves for goodness knows how many years. They, they were not a fighting army. But it does talk about the army of Israelites. But they weren't an, a fighting army. That, but they went out. Um, you know, it's like when you take a party of school children out and you get them to stand in twos, don't you, to march. They had to come out with some kind of, uh, of um, you know, not a rabble, but they had to march out. I think the authorised described it that they marched out in harness. What a great word. They marched out in harness. Not by two by two, but however they moved out and they came out in this. It must have been some sight, mustn't it? To see these people coming out of Egypt. But there they are. All done. Bags packed. Off we go. Simple journey. If you look at the map, the, the Jews, uh, or the Hebrews as they were then, had chosen this part of... of um, Goshen, in, in the northeast corner, 
It is Goshen, isn't it? Ivy kept correcting me on that because one of Moses' sons got a similar name, but it is Goshen that they were in, right? And um, I hate telling my wife what I'm preaching on because she corrects me all the time, right? But uh, the northeast corner of Egypt, and really, uh, it's just round the bend into Canaan. Very straightforward journey. Uh, And that's uh, that's the one that, that obviously, the Hebrews, uh, if they'd have known their, their country, probably the one that even Moses was thinking about. Very easy journey, just up. Just like going up the M5, branching right, or branching left rather, into Birmingham, and there you are in the promised land. Very easy journey. Well, let's put it this way. It should have been an easy journey. Just imagine it. Everybody there lined up. All the kids at the back, they start moving out. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Reminded me of a story. My dad's first car, old upright Ford Popular. And there were us three kids, and we were going on holiday somewhere. I couldn't recall where it was. But I can remember my brother, uh, younger brother. Are we there yet, Dad? Alan, he said, I've told you, goodness knows how many times, but it, it's over 100 miles where we're going. Well, how far have we gone now? 11. <laughs> Are we there? Are we there? Yeah. You can imagine. But yes, I mean, it should have been a fairly easy journey. Straightforward. So who put the block on it? God did. God did. Because what did he tell them? Turn back. Right in that first verse, wasn't it? 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. Now, nobody really knows where that is because these places have disappeared off the map, so nobody can actually pinpoint it. But safe to say that the Lord had led them into a cul-de-sac. Literally, there was, there was the, the sea in front of them that they had to cross. The Egyptians were behind them, or Egypt was, they didn't want to go back there. The mountains and the desert, and of course the Mediterranean Sea as it was. God led them into a cul-de-sac. Why? Why? Didn't they cry out to Moses, what have you done to us? You've led us into this. What, you know, wasn't there enough room to bury us in Egypt that you had to bring us into the desert so we could die? But here they are in this cul-de-sac. You have to excuse me, I can't. Um, yeah. I've led you into this cul-de-sac because I'm going to harden Pharaoh's hearts. And and God knew what Pharaoh would think, didn't he? And what did Pharaoh think? Verse 3, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And that's exactly what he thought. I often wonder that this man who was the head of such a great empire... Seems to be a bit of a, a, dare I use the word, idiot. How many times is he going to be beaten down? But then you think, how many times do some people hear the gospel and still harden their hearts to it? They're so, they're such a, 
you know, Paul talks in, in 1 Corinthians 10, and we may deal with that a little bit later on, but in 1 Corinthians 10 he says these, these things are written down as an example to us. And we can learn so much of it, can't we? You know, you pray for those who you love and, and, and hopefully those beyond that, that they will come to know the Lord. But you know that their hearts are being hardened and you ask the Lord not, the Lord not to harden their hearts. They harden their own hearts. They refuse to hear what's being said. And how many times is Pharaoh, is he not going to learn? And such foolishness. Why, why have we let them go? Well, surely he sat down and spoke about it before he let them go, didn't he? I mean, I know, you know, this was, the Lord brought some terrible plagues upon them. But they let them go. Why have we let them go? We've let, we've let all our servants go, all the, all the people who do all the odd jobs. Those that are building our, our temples, those that are building our pyramids, those that are building, you know, we've let them all go. Let's go and get them back. Now, this was a rabble. It was a rabble army. Well, somebody described it as a brick builder's rabble. <laughs> a brick builder's rabble. This was a rabble army. And yet, you know, Pharaoh, he knew he was up against something more than just a rabble army because he chose 600 of his best chariots and charioteers plus all the other chariots. He, in fact, he took out virtually his whole army to try and get these people back. Now, he'd have had no trouble in terms of military might in overcoming these people. So he knew he was up against something a little bit more, but he was still determined. Still determined. And God had led these people in, you know. He'd, he'd, he'd drawn... He'd drawn Pharaoh into this trap. Why? Does God work in such ways? Yes. It's obvious. <laughs> he works in such ways. But why has he done it? What does he tell them? You know, we're, we're on now, aren't we? We're, we're beginning to march. We're beginning to march, but God has said, no, stop. They're only just passed over the outside of... of Mind you... It's a difficult thing to, to remember because according to the history books, Canaan actually was part of the Egyptian empire at that time. They didn't pay much attention to it because they, they had all they needed in, the, in that area. But, uh, you know, they, they sort of marched out and they were on their way. And God has said, stop. I mean, it's the last thing you want to do, isn't it? You want to get going. You want to get to where you're going. There's nothing worse, is there, than, than setting out and... You know, when we, when we get going, you know, we're going off on holiday, probably doing about 200 miles, 300 miles up to Scotland. And we do about 25 miles down the M25 and Ivy wants to stop for the services. No, I want to get going. Come on. Let us hear. God's led them now into this cul-de-sac. But these people want to get going. So what does Moses say? Again, I think the... The NIV quite, doesn't quite get it, really, with the word that it uses. And it, it, you know, Moses says to the people, stand firm. The authorizer, I think, gets better because it says stand still. Stand still. Calm yourselves down. Don't moan at me. 
I've been told to lead you into this place, but now you must stand still because you are going to see the mighty power. You are going to see the glory of the Lord. Stand still. How often, how often do we stand still to see the glory of the Lord? We live such busy lives. The world lives such busy lives. I can always remember my brother-in-law, well, you know, I know it's an excuse, but we're just too busy to go to church these days. I've got too much on my plate. Not that going to church is the be-all and end-all, but basically what they're saying, they're making that the excuse, but they really haven't got time for God in their lives. And we need to make time for God in our lives. Because we have been called to serve him. We have been called to proclaim his glory to the world. And in all their frustration with the fact that they've been led into what appears to be a cul-de-sac where there there appears to be no way out and their journey has been interrupted because they're really looking forward to getting to this, this promised land that you know, has been promised to them for hundreds of years, even though probably for 400 years in, in slavery or where they've been 300 years, they've forgotten all about it themselves, and it hasn't been until Moses has turned up and reminded them of it. Oh, yeah, that was a promise God made. Yeah, let's go, the promised land. But as soon as things go wrong, start to moan, start to groan. But stand still says Moses, and see the glory of the Lord. That was Moses. In the next verse, says, God says, move on. What are you dilly-dallying for, Moses? What are you crying out to me for? Come on. And it's strange. What a great story. What a great story. Be still. But don't stay still forever. That's very easy. But now we've got to move on. They've got places to go, you've got things to do. Come on, Moses, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your rod. And what an amazing miracle. Have you, have you really ever considered this? I read it time and time and time again. I can remember speaking to Peter at Glasgow a few, well, probably towards the start of when he started coming to us on a regular basis. I said, How do you, you know, when you go about preparing a sermon, how do you do it? He said, if I'm given a passage of scripture, I read it. I thought, well, that's obvious. Then he says, I'll read it again. And then 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 I wait for God until God actually speaks to me from the pages as I read it again and again and again. And I thought, that's good. So I've read this again and again and again. And the phrase that keeps coming up every time, they crossed on Dry ground. Dry ground. Now, I'm no mariner, and I'm certainly not a 
marine biologists, but if it were possible to drain Tor Bay, how long do you think it would be before the seabed was capable of taking two million people plus livestock, plus carriages, chariots, and goodness knows what? And yet God did it as quickly as Jesus turned water into wine. That's the God we worship, you know. That is the God... It, it, we, we tend to separate ourselves a little bit, don't we, really? But we, we are the continuing story of this, aren't we? Although we get to Revelation, we sort of think, oh, well, that's it. Yes, okay, we've entered the age of the church, but we are still. We are still part of the promise. When we sing, you know, we stand as children of the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham, we are still part of. And this is the same God. The God who enabled the, 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 the two million or so people to cross on dry ground is the same God that we can cry out to. But I wonder how often you cry out to God. Now, I don't mean pray. I mean cry out. In many respects, as I've read this through and through and through, and I think, it, I think it's true of all scripture, really, as you, as you read it and digest it, and you, you, it makes me realise if I was, I don't know, if I was more faithful, if I was to set my face and really seek God as much as I should, how much more I could have achieved for him in my life. You know, I can, I can stand here and confidently say, I've done my bit, but is that good enough? I've done my bit. I've heard Christians say that. I've done my bit, I'm doing my bit. Hold on a minute. <laughs> dry ground I mean there's always this debate about whether it was the actual Red Sea or whether it was part of the Reed Sea I mean the, 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 the argument comes from that because the same, the same word is used as the as the, um, as the part where, where the um, Moses was put into the bulrushes so you know people think it was possibly the Reed Sea but so what whatever sea it was it was parted have you ever tried to hold water back? You know, they walked through twice, it tells us, didn't it? Because even though whoever is writing this, which was probably a few years after the thing, it was not a running commentary, but even he mentions it twice, they crossed through with Walter Pold on the right and Paul on the left. And the power of the sea as they walked through, and God is just holding it back. But it's ready to rush as soon as he lets go. And it wipes out an entire army. And it tells us, doesn't it, that God, that God calls the wheels to fall off the chariots. 
They didn't sink into the mud. It was dry ground. So we had to find another way of stopping them. And that's how we did it. Dry ground. What a God. They marched through safely. But what was it all for? God tells him. God tells him. In verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself. It's all about God's glory. Whatever we do in this life, in this Christian life, we do it for God's glory. If you're doing it for any other purpose, then you are wasting your time. What does it mean? It's a strange word, glory, isn't it? They called the old flag of the, the Southern Army in, in the in the uh, American Civil War, they called it old glory. What does it mean? It's a strange word. God's glory. Best description I came across or could come across. Revelation of his being. Revelation of his nature and presence, sometimes shown through physical phenomena doesn't really describe glory, does it? It's a, it's a strange word. It's one of those magical words. Sorry, I shouldn't use that sort of word, should I? But, but it is. It is. In our hearts, we understand what it means, but it's very hard to describe it to somebody, what glory actually means. But God was doing this for his glory, that people would see his glory. They would see his presence. They would know that he was with them. And when we do things for his glory, we will know that he is with us. We will see his hand working in what we do. And if we do it for any other reason, it's the wrong reason. We are called to, as it were, promote his glory. We're not in this business for ourselves. We're not in this business to, to tell of, of our philosophy. We're not in this business to tell how we feel, we're in this business to give God glory and to take his glory into the world. And this is what happened here. As the people stood poised to cross the sea, I wonder what they thought. You know, we're stuck in here, we're going to get out. We, we either go into the desert, we allow the, the Egyptians to come in and take us, they were scared stiff of that because he'd come with a mighty army. The Mediterranean and the Nile Delta, probably over here, where could they go? They couldn't take, God, God had already forbidden them to take Moses to take the obvious route, the trade routes, because being just a rabble of, of ordinary people, they would get attacked and things would get stolen, they'd get mugged, and goodness knows what else would happen. So he said, I will take them by a different way. And then all of a sudden this leader who remember they were what they were really critical of most of the time, suddenly stretches out his hand, the sea parts, and there is dry ground. 
I don't know if you've ever seen any of the sort of epics that they've made of, of, of this, you know, the cinema, where there's still been paddles, what they've had to paddle through, or it's been low enough for them to wade through. No, 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 no. This was dry ground, and it opened up before them. Through they went. Two million plus. And as they got to the other side, they turned, and then they saw God's glory. Terrible thing, really, isn't it? A slaughter like that being God's glory, but it was. It showed God's glory. showed what God could do, and what God would not be stopped in his tracks because his plan will work out regardless. No matter who. No matter who. No one will stand in the way of God completing what he has begun. Stand still. Stand still and see the glory of the Lord. Move on. What are you doing, Moses? Come on. You've had enough time standing still. Now you're going to see my glory. Now you're going to see it. Stretch out your hand. wonder how Moses... Can you imagine this? Do you, how did Moses feel? It's sad though, isn't it? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I mean, they, they'd seen all this. I mean, we have, a, we have a little bit of a pop at Pharaoh, don't we? Uh, and, and uh, well, what appears to us these days, uh, you know, all these thousands of years later, a little bit of stupidity. But this man wasn't prepared to give up his empire. But God was going to show him who was boss. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock and accompanied them. <coughs> and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, God, sorry, nevertheless, <coughs> God was not pleased with most of them. How sad is that? God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered over the desert. And as we know, only two of them actually passed into the promised land. God was not pleased with most of them. Even though they'd seen it all. Even though they'd seen it all. No wonder Jesus said, didn't he? Even more blessed will be those who haven't seen me. But believe. These people had seen it. They'd seen God at his mightiest. They'd seen God at his most powerful. They'd seen the glory of God. And yet as soon as they got to the other side, they started grumbling and moaning. I know a lot of Christians like that, me included. I grumble and moan. I do. But how sad that it happened. God had proved himself time and time again. And yet here they were moaning. They didn't have anything to drink, didn't have anything to eat. 
And what is sad about that is, of course, that although there were millions of thousands, certainly thousands upon thousands who passed into the promised land, and there were some dreadful things that happened. You remember the, the, um, uh, the golden calf. And Moses told the, the um, Levites to pick up their swords and go throughout the camp. And they slayed 3,000 people. And then there was 23, 24,000 who died over some other misdemeanor. And like I say, in the end, only two actually entered into the promised land. It's sad because although most of them didn't please God, and although he was disappointed in most of them, that wasn't all of them. And yet all of them suffered. But then doesn't that happen? We quite often, we're not punished for our sins. I don't, I don't believe in this, in this life. I don't believe in this life that we are punished for our sins. Christ took my sin upon himself at the cross. I shall be judged on what I do and what I am doing as a Christian. Or not so much judged, but I shall have to give an account of myself. But I will not be punished for my sin because that punishment has already been taken on Calvary's cross. That was something that the Hebrews would never have experienced. But you see... Other people's sin can certainly affect us. And that's what happened to the, to, the, to, the heat, to the Jews as they were in the desert. And as God punished their sin in the desert, there was a lot of those who really, in many respects, didn't deserve that, that, that punishment. But as a consequence of the sinners of others, they did suffer. And that's why none of them entered the promised land. And it happens in this world. You've only got to look around the world how Christians are having to suffer, not because necessarily because of their faith, but as a consequence of the sins of other people. We are in this world and we suffer as a consequence of other people's sin. But what an epic story. Can't wait to get on to the next... Uh, Phase. I mean, I have 31 verses tonight. In some respects, it makes it easy. But when we get onto the Ten Commandments, I think some of our preachers are only getting one verse, aren't they? <laughs> Which will be good. But here we are. We're just at the start of the journey now, aren't we? You know, things are going good. Okay, they was in a bit of a cul-de-sac, but God's got them out of it. They've crossed the river. They've crossed the river. They haven't reached the promised land yet. They're still pretty much in no man's land. And you know the story. Without me having to tell you, they will be in it for the next 40 years. But what a 40 years that turned out to be. But it was all for God's glory. Everything that you read in this book that God ordained and that God did, that he performed, he did it for his own glory. And that's your job, and that is my job, to take God's glory into the world. Are you prepared to do it? Are you prepared, first of all, to stand still, to reflect on God's glory, to realise what it is, 
and even maybe to see it. We certainly have seen it because if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you know God's glory because he is the, he is the pinnacle of God's glory. He was God's greatest act, if you can put it that way. He was the pinnacle of God's glory and we have seen it. We have experienced him. And that's the glory that we can take into the world. Do it for any other purpose, brother or sister, and you're wasting your time. And I speak to myself as much as anybody else. I certainly don't speak as one telling you this passage is spoken to me. I hope, despite all my shortcomings as a preacher, I hope that it is as... as meant something to you God's glory stand still move on and here we are just waiting now for God's next command what shall we do good stuff let's close by singing 631 tell out my soul